0: Morning, Village Church. I'm Matt. I'm one of the pastors here at the Village, and I'm good to be with you this morning, um, all of you. This morning we have um, some guests who were part of uh, this church when it was originally replanted, uh, in- including one of our founding elders, Mike Ramsey. And Mike and his wife, Jenny, are here this morning. and. Um, you know, this, this, is a, this is a good and healthy church, and, um, and that's for a lot of reasons, and it's all by God's grace and mercy, which we'll talk about this morning. But it has a lot to do with good and godly leaders, and this church has had it for a long time, including men like Mike Ramsey. And so um, it says that we're supposed to affirm people like that and thank them. So let's thank Mike and our elders this morning. Mike, thank you. Jenny, thank you. Thank you for your part in, um, in helping happen and helping with all that's happening in the life of our church for so many years. You're a good friend and a godly man and a great elder. I appreciate you. I'm so glad you're here this morning. I'm glad to have all of you here this morning. We're uh, starting—well, we started a new sermon series last week out of the book of Jonah. Um, We're calling it God's Heart for the Hardest People. God's Heart for the Hardest People, and I believe it is a very timely series. It's a very timely book of the Bible to be in. Matter of fact, some of the people that I know and that I even look up to are, are preaching the book of Jonah right now. I had no idea until well, we decided to preach it, and some of you told me, oh, this person's in the book of Jonah, and that person's in the book of Jonah. And I, I think maybe it's a timely book. It's a, it's a timely series because we live in a world that is increasingly filled with people that are increasingly hard toward God and hardened toward God, and even hardened toward his people. I think this is a timely book. It's a timely story for us. Because the book of Jonah is filled with all kinds of people that are hardened, have become hardened toward God. It actually starts with God's people. It's not referred to specifically, but at this time, the people of Israel are hardened toward God. Their hearts have become hard toward him mainly because God's not allowing them to just do whatever they want to do and live however they want to live. God's not giving them all the things that they are asking them for even though they're living in a way that's antithetical to what he has for them. They're professing believers that are saying, we want to live however we want, and we want you to give us everything that we want, and God's saying, no, I'm not doing that. And because of that, they've become hard toward God, God's own people. There's the Assyrians, and the Assyrians are are actually God's enemies. They are very hard toward God. They're very hard toward his people. They're persecuting God's people, and they want nothing to do with the God of the Bible. This morning, we'll see the sailors. We've already heard a little bit about their story, and they're kind of hard, rough people. I don't know if you've ever been around people in sort of that that industry, or that spend a lot of time on the water, but they have gotta be kind of hardened people who actually don't like to be around other people very much. And so they've actually chosen a profession where they don't have to be. They get to spend most of their time on the water with a small group of people, and they don't have to interact with culture at large. And we see that in the sailors in the story, even this morning. And then there's Jonah. Um, He's God's man, he's one of God's prophets. And yet Jonah is, well, actually the hardest person in this story. And yet all of these characters are meant to remind us that that the world is filled with people that are becoming increasingly hardened toward God. But I want to pause for a moment and say, this story is not mostly about that. The the book of Jonah, the story of Jonah, the the account of the life of Jonah, it's, it's, it's not mostly about the fact that there are people that are so hardened toward God. The book of Jonah is mostly about a God. It's mostly about God. Not a God who is soft, but a God who is kind, and a God who is compassionate, and a God who is forgiving, and a God who is merciful. This is what the book of Jonah is mostly about. And so this morning, we're going to be asking two questions. What is God's heart for the hardest people? And the second question is, do we have it? Do we share God's heart for the hardest people, and we get a glimpse into the answer of that first question, what is God's heart toward the hardest people, actually in the first two verses of this book, you can look at it with me in Jonah 1, 1, and 2, where it says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. The first thing I want to tell you this morning that I think we see in the book of Jonah, I think it might surprise us a bit, but I believe it's true. That God's heart is to tell the hardest people about his justice so that they can repent and they can receive his mercy. This is God's heart. This is why God is sending Jonah to Nineveh. He's saying, I want to tell the hardest people in the world about my justice and I want them to repent so that they can actually receive my mercy. Now look, uh, don't get me or don't get God wrong. Um, The people of Nineveh, the Assyrians, they deserved God's judgment. They were horrible people. They were hardened, they were horrible people. They did horrible things with each other. They did horrible things to each other. You could Google it when you go home. They did horrible things to all of the people of the world that they conquered. They were a horrible group of people and yet, God's heart is to tell them about the judgment that they are under because of their horrible sins. And God's heart is to tell them about His judgment that is coming upon them so that they'll repent of their sin, they'll repent of their way, they'll they'll turn from it, and they'll turn toward Him. And they can receive His mercy instead of justice. And we see this at the end of the story of Jonah. We're going to get there in a couple of weeks. But for this morning, I want to say this. I think too many people in our world see the God of the Bible as a vengeful God, that he has a vengeful heart, that God just, he just can't wait to pour out his vengeance. He's just sort of aching to just crush someone. There's a lot of talk today about the God of the Bible being such a vengeful God, that he has such a vengeful heart. But if you would open your Bible and you actually read it, and you'd actually see what happens in the Bible. You'd see that what the Bible says and what God says about himself, God's self-disclosure about himself that the Bible actually records, that the truth is that although God has a just heart, and he does because God is for justice, God does not have a vengeful heart. God does have a truthful yet, yet merciful heart. And having a truthful yet merciful heart that honor's justice is different than having a vengeful heart. That's not God's heart. We see it in God's self-disclosure of himself, Exodus 34, where he says to Moses, the Lord passed by him, Moses, and, and here's what God says about himself. The Lord, the Lord, how does he first describe himself? A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, All of the sin that we just willfully commit, and we just thumb our nose at them. That's what a transgression means. But who will by no means clear the guilty? Our God, the God of the Bible, is a God who is just. He is truthful. He's also merciful and loving. Another prophet, Ezekiel, God speaks to him, and he says, Go say to my people, as I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and that he would live. And when God comes to us in the person of Jesus Christ and we see God, as humanity sees God in human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, Jesus tells a number of stories about people that are running from God, people that are far from God, people that come back to him. People that are difficult people. Jesus is hanging out with all kinds of difficult people. And in this chapter where it describes Jesus hanging out with all these difficult people, Jesus himself says, those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous but but sinners to repentance. But to the hardest people I'm I'm coming to call to repentance. And and Peter, who was one of the three disciples that were closest to Jesus, and he was the leader of the early church, Peter said— that God is not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Listen, if you don't know God this morning, if you're not yet a Christian, if you don't know God's heart this morning, just for a moment, I want to do my best to reflect something of his heart toward you um, by telling you the truth this morning and inviting you to his mercy. And I want to reflect something in the heart, heart of God towards you and just in telling you the truth. And the truth is that if you're outside of Christ, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, if you don't have forgiveness of sins through him, the truth is that what the Bible says is that you are living under the judgment of God because of your sin. Because God is not only loving and merciful, he's also just and he has to punish sin. Because sin has devastating impact and effects on our relationship with God and our relationship with other people. Sin is the reason why everything in the world is ruined and broken, including your relationships with everyone else, including all the world's systems and structures in the world. This is what the Bible teaches and including our relationship with God himself. But if you're here this morning and you're hearing this and you're not yet a Christian and I'm doing my best to just lovingly and graciously and as humbly as I can tell you the truth— I believe the reason for that is because God wants to have mercy on you, that God wants you to receive his mercy and not his judgment or justice, that he wants you to turn from your sin and turn toward him. And you might say, well, Matt, I'm not like the Assyrians. I'm not like out there doing all these horrible things to all these people, and I'm not a horrible, hardened person. I feel like I'm kind of a good person. And I would say, I know, I know. But... But the Bible says that we've all sinned and we've all fallen short of the glory of God. We all sin in in thought, word, and deed, and it impacts our relationship with God and other people more than we think it does. And if you sat down to think just for a moment, I would humbly say that if you thought about the way that some of even your, what you might call shortcomings or your small sins would impact other people, maybe you'd see it a little bit more. I know I had. I do. I, I currently, I do. I do see it in my own life. But God's self-disclosure of himself in Exodus 34, where he says like, I'm merciful and I'm, I'm kind and I'm gracious, one chapter before that in Exodus chapter 33, he says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. And I would say, if that's you this morning, you're here and you're hearing me say these things, it's probably because God wants to show you his mercy. And the Bible says there's actually a way that, that you can receive mercy from God, that God has made a way for you to receive mercy from him. God sent his son Jesus Christ to God in human flesh to to live a sinless life on your behalf and on mine, to die on the cross and in our place and for our sins and that God would actually put all the judgment and the justice for your sin onto Jesus on the cross and Jesus would bear the weight of that, that sin and Jesus would take on the justice of God for your sin and for mine. And then when we place our faith and our hope and our trust in him as the son of God who's come to save us from our sin, we get to be forgiven for our sin. We get Jesus' sinless record, and he gets our sinful record. It's put on him on the cross, and his sinless record's put on us. And so now what God sees us, he sees us as he would see Jesus. And this is what we call the good news of the gospel. You heard, may have heard Christians talk about the good news, and it's, it's this, that Jesus took the judgment of God for our sin so we could receive the mercy of God even in spite of our sin. And I don't know about you, but I kinda can't help but sin. I, I keep sinning, I don't want to, but Jesus covers my sin and I'm forgiven and I'm so thankful. If you're not yet a Christian this morning, God is telling you this because he wants to show you mercy. That's his heart. And if you're already a Christian this morning, I think God is reminding you of this because well, you deserve judgment, didn't you? And you received mercy instead. You got what you don't deserve, and so did I. And maybe even for a moment, you just want to pause and say thank you to him. Even right in this moment, just in your mind, you would just utter a praise of thanks to God. and just say, oh God, thank you for your mercy. God's heart is to tell the hardest people about his judgment, that it's coming, so that they'll repent of their sin, they'll turn from those things, and they'll turn toward him, and they'll receive his mercy. The question for us is, do we have that heart do we as God's people share the same heart that God has? And we get a glimpse into Jonah's struggle with that question here in verse three, where it says, but Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa he found a shipping ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare. He went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. I think the second thing we see this morning here is that there is a big difference between knowing the heart of God toward the hardest people, and having the heart of God toward the hardest people. There is a big difference between knowing the heart of God for the hardest people and having the heart of God for the hardest people. Jonah knows the heart of God for the hardest people, but he doesn't have the heart of God for the hardest people. He knows what God's heart is. We find that out later in the book in chapter 4, verse 2, where he says, "...for I knew..." that you are a gracious God and merciful, that you're slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jesus, I mean, Jonah rather, knows what the heart of God is. He just doesn't have the heart of God in this moment. And the question is why? How could someone know what God's heart is and not have God's heart? This is true for Jonah. He knows it. He just doesn't have it. And I think we get a A glimpse of why in verse 3 where it says, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Jonah doesn't have the heart of God because Jonah is running from the Word of God and he's running from the presence of God. And if you're running from the Word of God and you're running from the presence of God, there is no way for you to have the heart of God because the heart of God is revealed in the Word of God. And we meet God. We, 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 we feel and sense his presence. We know his presence when we have his word open. When we're in the word of God, we know the presence of God. And Jonah's fleeing from the word of God, and he's fleeing from the presence of God. And so he does not have the heart of God. And, you know, honestly, this is kind of hard to believe. I mean, I know you've, you've heard the, the story of Jonah a lot, but just imagine if you were hearing this story for the first time. Imagine if you were hearing the story of Jonah for the first time. If if it was opened up and you were reading it, we were reading it for the first time, and we knew what we knew about Jonah, and then we start hearing this story, and we're like, that is really hard to believe. Because from what we know of Jonah from 2 Kings, is that Jonah was a prophet. He was a trusted prophet of God. And what we know that that means that, that Jonah hears words from God in the Old Testament. Jonah hears God's word, and Jonah shares God's word with God's people, And when he hears it and he shares it, he's right 100% of the time. In the Old Testament, there were consequences for prophets who claimed to speak for God and what they claimed would happen did not happen. So you're not a prophet of God if you don't speak the word of God and you're right 100% of the time. So much so that actually Jonah starts to serve in the court of the king, King Jeroboam. And yet, Jonah knows the heart of God, but he does not... Display the heart of god jonah 's actually running from the Word of God that he hears consistently and he 's running from the presence of God that he knows consistently. The question for us this morning, I think, is how does that happen? How does it happen How does that happen to a guy like jonah who who was a prophet of God? Well, the book of jonah actually doesn 't tell us how that happens specifically but the Bible itself gives us some clues as to how that happens generally. And I find one in a very familiar spot to most of you, probably. Psalm chapter, Psalm 1, verses 1 to 2, where it says, Blessed is the man who walks, not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. In Psalm 1, we see a very negative progression from someone who is, is not supposed to be walking with the, the wicked, and he's got movement going on, but eventually he is walking with the wicked so long as that he, he begins to stand in the way of sinners, and then eventually he just sits in the seat of scoffers. And what we see is this negative progression when he's supposed to be in the Word of God and, and in it often and always. And I think in the book of Jonah, we, we, we could likely see a, another progression. What likely happened in, in Jonah's life, like it does happen in all of God's people's lives, as the psalmist is, is referring to, is that, Jonah probably starts by wandering away from God's Word and God's presence, and we know how this happens. You're reading the Bible four days a week, and then you're reading the Bible two days a week, and then you're reading the Bible one day a week, and then you're reading the Bible no day a week, but you're glad you show up at the Village Church on a Sunday because someone stands over here and actually reads the Bible to you, but but that's all. You've wandered away from God's Word for whatever reasons. We'll get into two of them this morning in just a moment, but... We begin to wander away, and then we begin to walk away. There's a progression that you wander from God's Word, and it almost feels like unintentional, like, no, it's, I love the Word of God. It's not like I don't, I don't want to be there. But, but then we start to actually walk away from God's Word because, well, maybe it's telling us things that are hard that we don't want to deal with or we're not sure about. and. Well, we see—actually, we see a movement of people today, of young people today that are, like, sort of deconstructing their faith because they're, like, walking away from the Word of God, mostly because the Word of God tells them things they don't like about their sexual ethic. And if you're a young person or a college person you're here this morning, I'm just going to tell you straight up, I'll save you a lot of time, everything that has to do with people deconstructing or walking away from their historic Christian faith, all it has to do with is sex. That's it. At the end of the day, it's all related to sexual orientation and their sexual preferences. They have no problem with God's Word. They have no problem with how reliable it is. We're going to talk about that in six weeks. It's the most reliable book in the history of the world, and they know it. It's all about their sexual preferences. It's it. There's people that are actually walking away now from the Word of God, and what Jonah starts to do now is Jonah's running away from the Word of God. He starts by wandering Then maybe he's walking. We know now that he is running from God's word. He is so appalled at what God's word says and what God is asking him to do that he's running away from God's word and he's running away from God's presence. And I just want to tell you, this doesn't happen overnight. It happens with a subtle progression and I think it goes something like this. I just want to pause for a moment and say, if this can happen to Jonah, it can happen to anyone. If this can happen to Jonah, it can happen to me. If this could happen to Jonah, it could happen to you. This is how it happens. But the second question this morning, I think, is why does it happen? Why does this kind of progression happen? And I think there are actually two reasons that we can find in the book of Jonah this morning. I alluded to one of them. I think the first reason is, reason is that the Word of God asks us to do something we don't want to do. I mean, Jonah Jonah clearly did not want to go to Nineveh. He did not want to share the judgment of God with the people of Nineveh so that they could hear about God's judgment, they could repent of their sin, they could receive God's mercy. Jonah didn't want to do it because he hated them. He hated the Assyrians. The Jews hated them. They hated each other. He didn't want to do it because he didn't like them and he didn't like what God was asking him to do for and toward them. He doesn't think that they deserve God's mercy. He thinks only he does. And so at the end of the day, Jonah is too self-righteous to do what God is clearly asking him to do. And I think in a similar way, there, there might be things for us like that, that like God is asking us to do certain things that we just don't want to do. And we're too self-righteous to do them because we think, well, we deserve God's mercy, but all the people beyond the walls and windows, they are horrible and hardened people that clearly don't. And that's clearly not the heart of God. God tells us things like, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, and I really don't want to do that, honestly. You know, or to turn the other cheek. I don't want to do that. I'm not bent that way. I think the second reason is that not only does the Word of God, you know, tell us to do something we don't want to do, but the Word of God may ask us to do something we're actually not all that good at doing. Jonah asked God to go to Nineveh to proclaim to the hardest pagan people— about his judgment so they can receive his mercy. And guess what? Jonah has never done this, likely never done this before. Jonah is used to proclaiming the truth of God to God's people. He's not used to going to proclaim the truth of God to the hardest pagan people. And you and I might be able to sit down in our community group, and our accountability group, and say, hey, brother, listen, like, I, I want to do this as lovingly as I can, but kind of, I've been seeing this thing in your life, and I just, I just want to point it out because I love you. Like, we can sometimes have hard conversations with each other like that, Like, try going out there and doing that to the hardest pagan person that you know and see how they receive it, right? Like, you and I are not good at doing that, so we don't do it. We're not very good at these things. Always being ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within us. Unfortunately, we're not very good at speaking the truth in love or confronting sin and evil. And again, I want to speak to the young people, college students or high school students, like, I know that in this culture, when you speak to evil, like, you'll get crushed because of it from friends or on social media and I know it's tempting never to speak out against evil and sin we don't want to do it and and we're not good at doing it if we don't reverse this progression from wandering to walking to running from God and his word and his presence it can lead to a very dark place and we see that in Jonah chapter 1 verses 4 to 6 look at that with me are we having fun yet? All right. But the word of the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came down and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Rise, get up, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give thought to us and that we may not perish. I think the kind of sleep that Jonah's having where he's asleep in, the, asleep in the bottom of a boat, he's so tired, you can't wake him up. Um, <laughs> the older I get, I'm experiencing a little bit of that. Like sometimes I'm like, you know, just, I'm just gonna lay down on the couch for a minute. And my family's like, you're gone, you're out. You're never getting up. Like, you're not coming to bed. I'm like, no, babe, I'll be to bed in a second. And Luke's like, <laughs> you're not, you're sleeping right there. And you know it, you know, and sure enough, I wake up there, right? So like, I, I understand like you can be tired as you get older, you get like, you get tired, you, you, you sleep, maybe some of you can relate to that. Like this is different than that. Like Jonah's asleep in the midst of a gigantic storm on the ocean, on the sea rather. And I think this kind of, this kind of sleep, it comes as, as either distraction or it comes in a form of spiritual depression. Like when we get this tired, it's because we want to distract ourselves. When God's word is telling us to do something that we don't want to do or that we're not good at doing, we distract ourselves with hobbies, with substances, with relationships, with stupid Instagram or whatever. All kinds of things we'll distract ourselves with so that we don't have to actually do the thing that we know God's asking us to do. The best kind of distraction is sleep. If you just don't want to think about something, you just go to sleep and you don't have to think about it but it's also kind of a place where people go when they kind of enter into some kind of spiritual depression. And when we wander, when we walk away from God, when we walk away from his word, when we walk away from his presence and we know it, and we can't distract ourselves, there's nothing that distracts us enough. We can't actually fall asleep and stay asleep. And, and you know, we, we, we can't be distracted by those sorts of, in that kind of way, then, then, then we, we, we can actually go into this dark place of spiritual depression when we know what we ought to do and we're not doing it. And that emotional energy can lead us to a place where we just kind of fall asleep. Because I'm going to tell you right now, it takes more emotional energy to disobey and run from God than it does to actually suck it up and do the thing that He's asking us to do. Have you experienced that reality in your life? Like, there's all this kind of emotional energy that we spend trying to, like, negotiate with God and get around doing what He's asked us to do, what we know we're supposed to do, and we like, so emotionally drained by it. It would just be easier if we just were like, okay, like God says to do this and I'm going to go do that. And I know it's hard and I know it's intimidating and I'm not really good at it. And I'm not sure I want to do that, but like, it takes actually less emotional energy to do that than it does to run from God. And we get a picture of this in Psalm chapter six where David is talking about, God's discipline on him. And then he says in verse six and seven, I'm weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. My eyes waste away because of my grief. Like this is real. And I don't know, have you ever been in a place of spiritual depression? Because you know what God has asked you to do. You're just not willing to do it. And it's eaten up all kinds of emotional energy. Maybe you're there this morning. And I just wanna say, takes one to know one, what a miserable place to be. What an absolutely miserable place to be. I have been there, it's horrible. It sounds exactly like Psalm seven. Why would anyone wanna, why would I wanna be there? And why would any church want to be there? Why would any group of people like like a group of people like this group of people? Why would collectively we want to be a place like that, like this? And I, and I got to tell you, in some of the work that I've done over the years outside of the Village Church, helping other churches to kind of get healthy, churches that are stuck, they're stagnant, they're not going anywhere. There's no life in them. Dean and I have had the privilege to kind of step into that here and there. And, and i got to tell you, I've, I've worked with a, a number of churches that you go in and they just seem, they're so lifeless and you know it. We joke about these churches. We call them the frozen chosen, right? God's mercy is for us and for no one else. There's no life there. There's no vitality. It just seems like everyone comes and they're just this underlining spiritual depression. It's a joyless church. And there's a reason for that. Jesus said in Luke 15, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner, over one hardened or hardest person who repents than over 99 righteous persons that have no need of repentance. In churches where actually the gospel is being proclaimed and the people in the church are proclaiming the gospel, not only on Sunday, but between Sunday, they're inviting their friends and family. People are coming to know who Jesus is. They're seeing spiritual transformation. Those kinds of churches are filled with joy. And some of the churches I've had the privilege to work with, when I first go in there, there's eight marks that we go through. The last one is outreach and evangelism, and they're not doing it, and they're joyless because they're not telling the gospel to anyone. They're not telling anyone about the hard news that they're under God's judgment, but the good news is that there's a way to to receive mercy and grace from God through Jesus. They're not telling anyone for the two reasons we mentioned and probably more. This is one of the reasons why we want joy to be a value at the Village Church, and it is one of our seven values. We want to have joy in delighting in the gospel for our own sake, but we want to have joy in coming to see other people come to know Christ and follow him. and That's the joyful place to be. There's a lot in verses 4 to 6, but there's a little bit more. And I just want to touch on verse 4 once again where it says, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. I think here we learn that God is not content to leave us without his heart for the hardest people God is not content to leave us in that place God's not content to say hey you don't have to listen to me I know it's hard you know so don't worry about it I know you don't want to do it so like don't worry about it I know you don't think you're good at it and I'm going to agree with you you're not you know so just don't don't worry about that God's not content to leave us in that place knowing his heart for the hardest people, but not having his heart. He's not going to leave us there. And he's not going to leave us in the bottom of the boat like Jonah, spiritually depressed, expending all that emotional energy. God is too good to leave us in a place like that. He's going to come after us. He's going to pursue us. (laughs) Even when we don't want him to, he's going to get our attention so that he can draw us back to himself and listening this morning he's willing to do anything and i mean anything he's willing to do anything to make that happen including in the book of jonah apparently moving the forces of nature <laughs> god literally moves the forces of nature to get jonah's attention because god's heart is filled with too much mercy to let us go in some kind of spiritual sort of deflection, distraction, or depression. God is too good, he's too merciful to let us go that way without any intervention. God knows the miserable place that we will be, and so he comes after us. Let me, let me ask you just a, a question this morning. What do you sense God would be willing to do to get your attention? And are you ready for that? You ready for that? or would you prefer maybe God just get your attention right now anyone for that anyone for like God could you just get my attention right now as we open up the book of Jonah and like God I'm paying attention I was falling asleep but I'm listening now you know like I'm paying attention and I I see the story like what do you want to tell me because you can get my attention right now from this story instead of through some kind of raging storm that's going to happen so I'm, I'm listening Lord right A couple other things before we finish this morning. One is that when we wander, when we walk away, when we run away from God and his heart for the hardest people, it doesn't just affect us. It also affects them. It also impacts the hardest people in our world who already have a hard enough life as it is. I think we see that in verses seven to 10. They said to one another, come let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has actually come upon us. So they cast lots, and a lot fell on Jonah. And they said to him, tell us whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What's your country? What people are you? And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew. And I fear the Lord. Doesn't seem like it. The God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And then the men were exceedingly afraid. And they said to him, what is this that you've done to us? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord? Well, because Jonah, Jonah had told them. Which brings us to our fourth thing this morning, I think, is this, that if we live without God's heart for the hardest people, it can make life even harder on them. If we live without God's heart for even the hardest people, it can make life even harder on them. Listen, Jonah knows his identity. This verse, verse 9, is actually this chiastic structure in hebrew and and i know we went through it a little bit last week but but it basically is just everything points to this in this chapter and jonah's saying i am a hebrew and i fear the lord jonah knows his identity this is one of the central ideas of this chapter and this book jonah knows his identity he's just not living out of it jonah knows what he's supposed to do i'm a hebrew and i fear the lord and it's like you're not acting like that Jonah knows his identity. He knows the way he should be living. He should be fearing the Lord, but he's not. And it's impacting everyone around him. The storm only comes on these sailors as hardened and as rough as they are when Jonah comes with them. The question I want to ask this morning just briefly is, how much of the cultural storms around us are a result of God's people not doing the things that they know they ought to be doing, not saying the things that they know they ought to be saying, especially as it relates to the hardest people in the world. I mean, I don't know. Maybe our culture would be a bit less sexually exploitive if Christians spoke up a bit more and a bit more often about God's design for sex and about the blessing that it is to follow God's design for sex and the, the harmful things that come when we don't follow God's design for sex, when we kind of go outside all the boundaries and create all the boundaries that we want for ourselves instead of God's boundaries for us. If Christians spoke up a bit more about this, maybe our, maybe our culture would be a le- bit more sexually exploitive if we just could get some courage and speak up about it. Maybe if we would have a culture that wasn't so confused with It's gender apparently, which is just nuts to me, but like, it seems pretty simple. You know, but maybe we wouldn't have a culture that's so confused about that, and so many genders that you could actually choose or create for yourself if, if Christians actually spoke up more in a more winsome way about the truth about how God created us in His image and likeness, and how God created male and female, and, and God's ideal for how that's actually supposed to work, God's design for the sexes. Maybe if we spoke up about more about God's beautiful design for the sexes, there'd be less war between the sexes, and there'd be less people saying, I want to make whatever sex I want to make, and I want to identify as whatever I want to identify with. There's so confused because maybe God's people haven't been clear, or haven't been clear about why the, there's a beauty in the way that God has designed things, and that the good life is there, and it's not in these—they're going to harm themselves in these other ways. But we don't want to say anything. We don't want any blowback on us. Maybe we have a culture that has a bit more biblical understanding of marriage if more Christians would have spoke up sooner. It's not just a political issue or a tax issue. These people should be able to have same tax implications as anyone else for sure whatever who cares it's a marriage issue it's a theological issue but christians were not quick enough or not not winsome enough not gracious enough even when they spoke up even though they're not truthful enough at the same time about what marriage is and how god designed it and so now well it's just anything maybe we would have a culture that was a bit less of a culture of death if more christians were willing to say abortion is not a political issue it is a moral issue it is a biblical issue it is a A a human issue, that there are humans that are created in the image and likeness of God, and there are humans that are, well, that are very vulnerable, and the most vulnerable humans are the ones that are in the womb, and if Christians would be willing to say, well, I don't know, that's a political issue, I'm just like not the kind of Christian that talks about that. I am, and I'm not ashamed of that, and I hope you are. This is not a political issue. Maybe we would be killing less babies if Christians, like, said a little bit more often, hey, this is why we don't do this, and these are the implications of this. And again, not saying that in a in a hard way, a gracious way, but a, a truthful way, because remember, God's heart is not a vengeful heart, but it is a truthful heart as well as a merciful heart. Maybe we'd have a culture that wasn't so financially exploitive. If more Christians would just talk about God's design for money, it would be more generous and be less greedy. Maybe if we talked more about the good things that come through generosity. Maybe we said more things about the harmful things about financial injustices. We talked about, well, why do certain people get insider trading rules basically and other people don't? And again, there's all kinds of political issues. They're not political, they're moral issues. It's not right. And there's all kinds of systems and structures that are bent toward the rich and that really affect the poor. And that's a shame. And it's a shame that Oliver Anthony is crushing us. Richmond, north of Richmond, like Oliver Anthony is crushing us like, a lot of the stuff that he says, I'm not, I'm not endorsing him. I'm just saying a lot of stuff in his song is really true, but Christians should be saying that sort of thing in a more winsome and biblical kind of way. We're getting crushed by him. We're not doing ourselves, and we're not doing anyone any favors by keeping quiet, by not telling the world that they're ruining their lives through their sin, and not giving them a compelling and winsome way, the way of Jesus as an alternative We're not doing anyone any favors when we're not living out of our identity. Jonah says, I am a Hebrew, and I want to stand in front of you and say, I am the light of the world and the salt of the earth, and so are you. You are the light of the world, and you are the salt of the earth. You're a Christian, which means you are a little Christ in a sense, or you're a follower of Christ. And the spirit of Christ dwells in you. This is who you are. And Jesus spoke out against these things in a very winsome, and yet a very direct way. You know what makes life better for everyone in a culture? When Christians speak to the hardest people in that culture and when Christians tackle the hardest issues in that culture, that's what's helpful to everyone. That's what makes everyone's life better. I don't even think that's our main job here. I think our main job here is just to proclaim the gospel and to get people to heaven. But I think part of our job here is to help people maybe experience more a little bit more of that here on earth thy kingdom come thy will be done we want the culture of heaven to invade earth and so i think what makes life better for everyone is when christians see that there's a need for people that are sick and they create hospitals and by the way we have and if you're not yet a christian you're welcome and i'm not saying that in a prideful way i'm just saying just think about for a moment all things that christians do do I think it's better for everyone when Christians see that there's orphans and they shouldn't live on the street, they should actually live somewhere. And so they create orphanages. And to the culture, I just want to say, you're welcome. And again, not in a prideful way, I'm just saying. What's helpful is when Christians see that people actually live on the streets and then they create homeless shelters for them. And, and the Salvation Army would probably say to the culture, you're welcome, we'll do, we do it again. And we do it a hundred times over. We'd house you, we'd feed you, we'd take care of you. When people are enslaved in the world and guys like William Wilberforce say, yeah, no, that's not right. And they seek to end those things or when people are human trafficked and a ton of Christians rise up and say, that's not right because those people that created the image and likeness of God, that's when life is better for everyone. When women get pregnant outside of an ideal situation, a biblical situation, and they don't have nowhere else to go, it's Christians who opened crisis pregnancy centers And by the way, we don't open them in the places where we seek to kill certain kinds of babies and save others. We open up crisis pregnancy centers for everyone who is in crisis. And the world is better for everyone when Christians do that, and Christians do do that. The world is better when actually prisoners experience some kind of reform. And I'll tell you from experience and talking to people in this movement that when prisoners, people that go to jail are actually reformed, and there's less recidivism, is when actually people who have a Christian worldview come in and talk with them about the real problem that they're facing. The world is better when Christians are generous. And in our country, they are. Christians are the most generous people in our country. They give more to nonprofit organizations than anyone does in our country. And so, Christians have done a lot, by God's grace, have done a lot to help make things better. And you and I can continue to do that. And you know who knows that? The world knows it. The world knows that that's what we're supposed to be doing. And I think sometimes when the world is screaming at us as the people of God, if the world is hardened toward us as the people of God, I think that part of the reason is because they have a contempt for us. They know what we should be doing and we're not doing it. I'm not saying that's all the reason. I'm saying I think that could be some of the reason. There's one last lesson I think we can learn about the heart of God and we're gonna do it quickly this morning, it's verses 11 to 16. They said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea and then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it's because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land but they could not for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and they hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. And then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. I think the last thing we see this morning is that as Pastor Bowman said last week, if we don't live with God's heart for the hardest people, God will still save them Not with us, but without us or even in spite of us. That if we know the heart for God's heart for the hardest people, but we don't have God's heart for the hardest people, God's still going to save them. He's just going to do it without us or he's going to do it in spite of us. And that's what happens here. They throw Jonah into the sea, and Jonah is literally sinking down into the depths, as we'll see next week in Jonah chapter 2. It's not like they throw him into the sea and like Jonah's treading water, I don't think, at least. You know, and Jonah's treading water, and then like eventually he's like, I can't tread water anymore, Ugh, You know, and he falls down. And, and Jonah gets to see them offering the sacrifices. I think they throw him overboard. Jonah begins to sink down in the water, as it says in chapter 2. The sea is calmed. Those guys repent. They offer sacrifices and make vows to God. Those guys become believers, and Jonah never gets to see it. But God does it. God knows he can offer mercy to people in spite of us or without us. But God wants to do it through us. Wouldn't we just rather let him do it through us? (laughs) Again, the good news this morning is that Jesus took the judgment of God for our sin so that we could receive the mercy of God in spite of our sin. That we've done so much to harden ourselves toward God in, in ways. We've walked away, but but he's come after us and he always does to draw us back. He's taken it all on himself so that we can receive mercy. We can come to him and we can be involved in the things that he's doing. And what a great place to be. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord, quite simply this morning, we just recognize that we are the hardest people that you are not a soft God, but you are a kind and compassionate and forgiving and merciful God. And that we are not naturally soft people, we're hard, but that you have have turned, as the Bible says, our hearts of stone into hearts of flesh, and we thank you. It's true for all of us, we're all the hardest people, and you've turned hard hearts toward yourself and we're forever grateful. We pray that our worship this morning would be a way of us saying thank you for the mercy you've extended for us. And we thank you in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.